Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Dimitri Karbaliotti, who is uh, the director of the CTO, Advanced Coronary Therapeutics and Mechanical Circulatory Support at the Morristown Medical Center. Dimitri, thanks again. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the Sensei Podcast. It's always my pleasure, uh, Manos, and I look forward to a great uh, discussion. Dimitri, you've been one of the people who brought a CTO to the forefront and have done many, many things to build the programs, refine the techniques. But from the beginning, how did it start from you? When did you decide to do CTO and complex coronary interventions? Is that something you always going to do? Something that you decided down the line? How did this happen for you? Well, uh, even while I uh, was at a, a fellowship, I was always intrigued by complex uh, coronary PCI and uh, even from back then, I did realize that there was a large population of patients uh, with chronic total occlusions or other complex uh, lesions that they were actually undertreated. Um, the timing was good because back then, if you remember 2008, 2009, there was a kind of a big boom around uh, CTOs. Uh, we started working with our Japanese colleagues. We formed here in the U.S. Uh, um, a CTO uh, group uh, and uh, there were major advanced technology with wires and microcasters and new techniques back then. So the timing couldn't have been better. Uh, so uh, my uh, drive was to be able to acquire the skills to and the knowledge to, to help people who had uh, complex lesions and chronic total uh, occlusions. Uh, and then the defining moment was when I uh, met Bill Lombardi uh, who, as we all know, he's the pioneer of uh, CTOPCI in the U.S., has uh, changed uh, the overall uh, scene of uh, complex uh, PCI in the United States, has essentially created the school, I think, and a great group of people that throughout the years we grew up uh, professionally together and we were able to learn from each other and advance uh, the field. And also some, we formed some very uh, long-lasting and solid friendships. And I still remember, I think that was a dinner in Atlanta, ICC, I forget what meeting it was. And uh, I still remember that, uh, you know, you had probably 30 cases or something that you went through an evening with Bill and a bunch of other people. So you were extremely intense from the beginning, very committed on this. How, how, how did this happen for you? How did you um, start doing the cases and did you learn by doing them? I know you had other people uh, when you were at uh, Piedmont. How did this? Um, how did you actually learn to do them? Was it people helping you, just discovering yeah. yourself? Yeah. So, 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 so your memory is pretty good, uh, and uh, you're thinking clear still. Uh, so, yes, <laughs> it, it, it was back at Piedmont. It was 2010. It was January 10, 2010, that we actually uh, organized there with uh, Nick uh, Limbo. Uh, as hosts, uh, the first kind of large uh, CTO gathering uh, in the U.S. I think we had about 25 uh, people, both from the United States, U.K. and Canada. And uh, you're right, in two days, I think we did 30 uh, cases. 
So, um, uh, you know, when we, when I, when I engage myself uh, in something, I give it hundred percent. So we were very enthusiastic back then, very motivated, and uh, put a lot of work in. Uh, and I think it was, I still remember this. It was uh, a great uh, meeting. We learned a lot. Uh, and that kind of sparkled uh, um, other meetings uh, around uh, the country uh, since then. Uh, so to answer the question, I was also very much influenced by Nick Limbo. He's, uh, as you, everybody knows, Nick Limbo, one of the uh, legends uh, in the field. And uh, one of the things that he does is he's always very focused and very organized and thrives for perfection. So I remember that when we did this, obviously, to have third patients to do in two days, it's a lot of uh, uh, work. But in addition to that, just to tell you how much attention he paid, uh, and we paid details, we even had special lockers and keys and scrubs for um, our guest operators. So it was uh, something that I truly uh, cherish, uh, uh, that uh, that meeting. And I guess you've used a systematic approach since then all the time, and I think you're the one who published probably the first paper on how to build a CTO program, remember experience in Pittman, and the importance of the team and the contrast and the radiation. So how what sparkled you being so systematic and to condense it was it your interaction with nick was it the complexity of cases how did you kind of build the program and made it one of the best uh, uh, in the us and the world it, it it was very evident from the beginning that in order to do this case successfully you had to do it in a programmatic fashion so it's not about a single operator it's about uh, a program you're only going to be as good as your weakest uh, link uh, in your in your team, so we very early on realized that in order to have a successful program, uh, we need to have uh, the buy-in of the administration. We need to have the buy-in of the Catholic <coughs> the nurses, the techs, the CCUs, the other interventionists. Um, also, it was very evident that these cases were extremely difficult, and these are not cases that you go in and you improvise. So we implemented this very systematic approach, as you said, where everybody is involved, everybody understands uh, what it is all about, and then make sure that we have the right equipment, the right ancillary uh, staff, uh, and also approach these lesions uh, systematically. Um, this is this was a time of the hybrid algorithm that you uh, published, and you were kind enough to involve a lot of us. I think uh, we spent two days at Bellingham, uh, Seattle, we didn't see the light of the day. You remember uh, it was winter, I think, and we, we were waking up like 4.30 in the morning to go to the cath lab, and we were coming back 7, 8 o'clock at night uh, in a pouring rain, and <laughs> it was a little bit surreal. Uh, and um, that's where I really picked up the, the importance of a systematic uh, approach, and uh, obviously sometimes you need to create from thin air, but unless you have a systematic approach like the hybrid algorithm back then or any other algorithms that have evolved uh, since now, I think we have five or six algorithms. And finally, we have a global consensus uh, algorithm that you did a lot of work with other experts around the world. And thank you for everything that you've done in the field. But again, systematic and programmatic approach uh, is the key to uh, to success. What, if I may just uh, add something, what really, uh, charities uh, program uh, development at Piedmont as, as well as in other places in the US is that we formed a community. And I think that we changed uh, the mentality and the way interventionists interact with each other. Uh, 
Uh, it stopped at some point being an individual sport, so to speak, it became a team sport. I remember late night calls to you, to Manos, when I had a problem, or me receiving a call if someone had a question, FaceTime, try to review films, help each other. And um, uh, that gave uh, Nick and myself the idea that, uh, uh, for example, double scrubbing might be a, a good idea in these cases, both because you can uh, increase your experience by more exposure to cases, but also four hands and uh, two brains and two of eyes are uh, better uh, than one. So we uh, formed uh, from the beginning a program. Uh, everybody had a very clearly uh, defined role. Uh, and we were scrubbed uh, in every case. We had a days, uh, which I think that's key for any uh, program or any interventionist or any team that they want to start any kind of program, whether it be peripheral, structural, congenital, complex coronary shock, and so on and so forth to do it uh, in a programmatic uh, approach and team up with people who have the same interest and skills uh, uh, and motivation like uh, you do. And are you still able to do that? Or now I know things have changed and new environment and pressures. Are you still able to double scrub cases or you now do them by yourself most of the time? I'm very fortunate because when I left Colombia, essentially I left uh, with an entire team to go to when we were recruited to Morristown. So I'm working very closely with my ex-fellow, prior fellow, uh, Dr. Amir Masumi. And uh, we're still uh, double scrubbing uh, in, uh, in every case. Uh, okay. I think it's a good idea. These cases can uh, be long. Uh, also, as you know, speaking of pressure and being very busy, sometimes the phone never stops uh, going off or texts or people are coming and asking you questions about a patient in the unit and so on and so forth. So uh, you need the second person in these cases, especially if you have a very busy practice with a lot of responsibilities across the hospital system. I think that helps um, a lot. And also, not only psychologically, but also it helps physically because you can split, for example, the case, one gets access, then if you're very tired, someone else can close and you can... Uh, uh, go back and forth in the different stages of the procedure and alternate between who's the primary operator or the specific uh, step, so to speak, of the case. So, Dimitri, you always, I've seen you in live cases around the world, essentially, and you always seem so confident, so calm, relaxed. Do you ever get stressed out with CTO complex cases or don't stress you out anymore? Well, you have to keep your calm, otherwise uh, bad things are happen will happen. If you lose it during the case or uh, people sense around the room that you're lost or that uh, you're doing erratic movements, or you're not really handling the situation, then that can be detrimental to the patient outcome. Having said that, that doesn't mean that uh, these cases are not taken seriously and we're not feeling a healthy degree of stress and anxiety. Uh, where, the, where it becomes problematic is uh, if this goes into extreme, where you might get paralyzed and start uh, making uh, mistakes. So um, my uh, approach to this case is not only during life cases, uh, obviously where the stress, so to speak, is bigger because you are in front of an audience of sometimes thousand uh, people, uh, but also during my daily practice, um, I do uh, keep uh, uh, my calm. Uh, because otherwise, because it's essential for the safety and uh, the success uh, of the story. Um, also, you need 
to in difficult situations you need to be able to maintain uh, your composure and direct other people in the room the techs the nurses other physicians that you may have called for help um and clearly uh, you need to be uh, very calm and uh, and uh, in control um but again let's not fool ourselves these cases are stressful uh, we've been doing that together we've started pretty much the same time maybe you started a little earlier uh than me uh but despite having done thousands uh, of them under different environments and circumstances there's still uh cases that are uh very taxing both mentally and uh and physically and um i don't think that uh will uh change uh, much uh in uh, in the future certainly i don't panic certainly i don't i'm not afraid uh but uh is it stressful do i think the night before about the case or the morning do i spend a lot of time re-reviewing the case like for a tenth time yes i do well i still remember there was a case i think i was moderating you're doing a live case where your rotor blading and the rotor wire was a early version broke and the bird went right through and you know usually in the live cases this is done you stop the transmission but actually you kept it going which i was amazed and then you know very systematically got through this um, have you had cases like this that you know have stayed in your memory for, you know, have influenced how you practice? Or yes, yes, and there have been. Uh, I remember actually that case very well because uh, you suggested let's uh, get off camera and uh, let Dimitri uh, deal with this, and I told you no. This is what people need to see. Uh, they 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 should get the full uh, picture uh, uh, about uh, what uh, we're doing. Um, and I think that's essential because all these cases, not just CTOs, but complex cases, whether they're structural or coronaries, when you present them on a PowerPoint presentation, it all looks so smooth and uh, so easy and so predictable. But the truth of the matter, as you know probably better than anybody else, and you've written exp- uh, published extensively on this, is that that's not uh, the case. It takes time. There's You've spoken extensively about operate fatigue or even patient fatigue, radiation, contrast, and so on, and, uh, and, and so on, uh, and so forth. Um, the, I think the biggest, uh, the most important thing is uh, obviously not to get in trouble and try to prevent it. But uh, what I do before every case, whether it's CTO or not, I'm trying to think uh, through myself what can go wrong. And am I in a position to, or my institution, are we in a position to deal with it? If the answer is yes, that there is a potential risk, for example, I don't know, rotablating in the subintimal space or going through a difficult collateral or doing a very aggressive reverse cart in an angulated segment, that uh, things may happen. Uh, but if the answer to the question can deal with it, yes, then you can you can proceed. If you feel that you're not uh, capable of dealing with a, a potential complication, or if you don't have the support and the capabilities in your local facility, it's probably better not to engage uh, in these uh, cases, or at least to start always with the safest, simplest uh, uh, approach, and then escalate it to more complicated, uh, complex uh, approaches. But again, the issue of when to stop, I think, uh, and we've had the discussion several times among the, uh, the, the group, so to speak, is, is, is a key one. So, Dimitri, you've trained many, many people in CTO-PCI. 
Um, what are the things that you look for when you select your city or complex fellows? Is it their character? Is it their technical skills? Their curiosity? What is the things that is most important for you to choose the people that you train for CTO and complex PCI? I think uh, obviously you need to have uh, skills and you need to have a very thorough and deep knowledge of the field and uh, equipment. But to me, the most most important thing is personality and the drive that the that the candidate has. Uh, most of the things uh, can be taught. Obviously, yes, you do need to have a little bit of dexterity with your hands and have good eyes and be experienced. But the most important thing is personality, attitude, and drive, and and then, and, 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 and commitment. And then, what do you find is the most difficult thing to teach from the CTO? You know, the ramentarium techniques, wires, microcasters. What do you find is the hardest thing to communicate and teach the fellows? Uh, I think wire skills, uh, first of all, I always uh, start by, um, and the way I teach the fellows, I do it in a stepwise fashion. I spend a lot of time uh, during the first few weeks uh, discussing with the fellows, uh, reading and learning equipment. Uh, CTO PCI is not a one catheter, one wire, one balloon, one stand technique. You need to have a very deep understanding uh, on the engineering properties of the wires, microcatheters, and other equipment, uh, ancillary equipment that we use, so that you know what to expect out of them, uh, how to use them safely, and what to change when to change when things uh, don't work. So, uh, and this is something that in general fellowships, I don't know what's your experience, Mano, but uh, when I was trained, we learned a lot about disease, we learned a lot about guidelines, about indications. But uh, nobody taught us, for example, what's the difference. Or nobody really explained to us what the tip uh, gram of the wire uh, really means or how a microcaster is constructed so that we can understand what uh, are the things that we need to do so that we don't cause microcaster fatigue or prolapse or damage the tip and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that still this is something that is missing from general interventional fellowships. Uh, fellows need to understand the uh, engineering properties uh, of the wires. By doing that, let's say you know when a wire looks correct and feels correct or, we, or, or when it doesn't. So that's number one deep understanding and uh, spending a lot of time learning about the equipment. Then what I do is uh, I start uh, training the fellows um, gradually. So they will do, let's say, uh, initially the wire escalation part of it. Then they will do an easy ADR. Uh, and as they get experience, they will start doing the retrogrades. But even in the retrogrades, sometimes there are uh, steps in the procedure that are a little bit tricky. And then that's where uh, a good teacher comes in place and, you know, bails pick out the situation and uh, so that the case can advance. Uh, I, I don't think that it's uh, the right thing to do from day one to throw them in the ocean and swim. They're going to get lost. So it, need to, it needs to be a stepwise approach uh, towards uh, treatment. Um, towards uh, training and learning, I'm sorry. Um, the most uh, important skill, I think, is uh, wiring skills. Uh, and uh, that uh, uh, 
also connects very well with the, what I said before, understanding the engineering properties of the wires. Uh, what kind of bend to put? When we when we train, everybody puts the same bend because it works 90% of the cases. Here, they need to learn how to put different bends, how to manipulate the wire, how to understand tactile feedback, but also visual feedback. So to, summar, to just so that I um, answer your question in brief, uh, wiring skills, I think that is the most um, uh, critical uh, skill in um, CTO-PCI. Having said that, I don't think you should engage in CTO-PCI unless you're already an experienced and good overall interventionist. I tell my, uh, my fellows, and I think when we also have dinner or when we are in meetings, that um, uh, even those vessels are difficult vessels to treat. So even if they didn't have a CTO, they're so tortuous, they're so calcified, they have diffuse disease, the anatomy may be distorted because of prior uh, open heart surgery. So if you don't know how to, if you're not good with uh, getting maximum guide support, if you're not good, for example, with guide extensions, with rotational thorectomy, CSI, intravascular imaging is key. I image 100% of my cases. So before you engage into uh, the um, uh, details, so to speak, or advanced skills of CTO PCI, I think people need to be very, very good with uh, complex uh, PCI. Uh, and also uh, doing CTO PCI makes you a better overall uh, PCI uh, operator. And that's another message that I've been trying to relay throughout the years around the world is that, okay, you may have <clears throat> uh, objections <clears throat> about indications or how useful CTO PCI is, or maybe uh, that we must be doing it in a much even more selective fashion than we do. Even if, even if you have all those uh, reservations, engaging and learning the techniques of CTO PCI will make you a much better operator. It will make you uh, uh, also very valuable in the cath lab because you will be can get called to give opinion or to bail out uh, your colleagues or yourself from uh, difficult situations that you may run in non-CTO. So, Dimitri, you've been done a phenomenal career, a lot of many things, operator, teaching people. What is the things that you are most proud of, uh, both professionally and personally? Well, personally, I would say that I'm very proud. It may sound like a cliche. I have a wonderful family. So <laughs> it's my uh, wife and my son that uh, is the most important thing in my life. And, uh, and I say that uh, because we tend to forget and time flies. And if you get too much uh, deep involved uh, in uh, advanced uh, PCI and CTOs and you travel around the world and you publish and you're so busy every day, you miss a lot of things from everyday life and time, you cannot bring time back. So I can, my, my son was like three years ago, three years old like yesterday and he's 16 now. And this is an advice that uh, all their, my mentors were giving me, say don't make the same mistake that uh, we made uh, and spend time with your family. Guess what? We all make the same mistake. No matter how many times we hear this advice and we understand that it's a wise advice, it's very, very, very difficult to uh, follow it uh, to the T. Uh, from as far as my professional career, uh, the things that I'm proud of, the, more, the, the number one is training fellows. 
uh, who are now, I'm proud to say that uh, they are leaders in, in the field and they direct uh, uh, their uh, departments in very um, uh, well-renowned uh, uh, institutions. Uh, and the other thing is uh, that uh, I've been in three places now and I like to build programs. And uh, so far, uh, both at Piedmont and Columbia and here in my new endeavor at Morristown, I have the same attitudes about building a program, program and that's uh, why I think uh, my team has been uh, successful in all three places. And uh, what excites you the most right now? What is the thing that is most exciting for you? Well, uh, it, number one... Uh, in my list has been training very talented fellows who currently are uh, holding leadership positions in world-renowned uh, academic centers. I don't think there's anything more uh, rewarding uh, than that. As far as professionally, um, I think that uh, there's a big need to make advancements in the area of uh, high-risk PCI with mechanical circulatory support, as well as in the management of shock. And in our new place at Morristown, with the leadership of Amir Masumi, who's trained as an interventionist, heart failure specialist, mechanical circulatory support, transplant, and CHF, I think we um, created a, a very good model that can serve as a paradigm uh, on how you can, across a system, not only just one hospital, but across a healthcare system, you can build uh, a shock team and uh, deal with uh, the sickest uh, of the sick. As you know, over the last 20 years, we haven't really moved the needle too much as far as uh, our outcomes in patients with cardiogenic shock. I think that right now there are several studies that are going on and that we participate actively uh, and that will give us answers uh, with uh, the final intention to help our patients and improve uh, the outcomes, which are still not uh, very good. Now, what is your favorite book and your favorite movie? <laughs> My favorite movie that's easy, Casablanca. How about the favorite book? <laughs> <laughs> yes, with Bergman and Bogard. Uh, I think that's a masterpiece. Uh, so that's uh, by far my, uh, my uh, best, my, my, my favorite uh, uh, music. Uh, my favorite uh, book, uh, there are many, uh, but uh, I am a big... Um, uh, fan of uh, classic, the classics. And when I say the classics, I mean the uh, Greek classics, from Plato, Thucydides, uh, ancient tragedy. So uh, it sounds a little bit bizarre, but uh, that's where my main uh, interest is. I also like uh, literature, both European, American, and Latin American. I like uh, 20th century uh, literature. I like Kafka. I like Dostoevsky. Um, I like Proust. So there are many, 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 but number one is uh, the ancient Greeks. And Not then, because I'm Greek, it's just because <laughs> they just have defined everything in the world that we live in. You know, I could not agree more, but I think we're both a little biased in that respect, so. No, um, you think? <laughs> <laughs> so, Dimitri, again, you've done a phenomenal work teaching and doing amazing procedures. What would be your piece of advice like two or three tips of advice for the people who are training want to learn to become good like you? Don't try to do it by yourself. Take a systematic approach 
there, uh, talk to people that have done it before, talk to people that are already established, uh, learn from them, uh, and uh, work very closely uh, with uh, um, the people that you choose uh, to work with. Uh, and uh, always remember that this is a long, a long journey. Uh, even now, I'm sure it's the same with you, Manos. We, we're learning every day. We're adjusting uh, our practice. So, for example, um, you probably know that, but I used to be one of uh, um, the most enthusiastic uh, operators as far as wiring epicardial collaterals, for example. Uh, I've cut down significantly just because there is an inherent risk uh, there. Uh, and I'm just saying that not to uh, say that it's not a useful technique and that it's not be used, but I'm saying that uh, we have to be very, very careful and understand the risks um, uh, and also to be flexible and adjust uh, when during, during the career. I do more and more radials. For example, I try to reduce the size of the sheaths Pretty much uh, until a couple of years ago, everything was bifemoral uh, eight French. Uh, it doesn't need to be uh, like that all the time. Uh, and then try new things. Try new things, but also uh, don't try to make huge big steps. This is like a, a step by step towards approving. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much. It's been amazing talking to you. Thanks uh, for being an amazing operator, great friend over all these many years, and uh, excited to work with you again soon. Manu, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you, and uh, I want to thank you for all your contributions uh, throughout the year. You've been a phenomenal, obviously, operator, but also uh, educator, uh, and uh, thank you for your friendship and your ongoing support. Thank you for listening to the Sunset Podcast. 